from April 1860 to October 1861, Americans had a new and improved way to connect the western frontier with the eastern states. The Pony Express. The newly founded state of California with its rapidly growing population sparked the idea of a fast mail route that could reach the Pacific Coast. And not just reach it, but reach it in a new efficient and fast way. The founders of the Pony Express were determined to bring a new level of speed and efficiency to transcontinental mail service. Instead of stagecoaches, they would use single-mounted riders, which would allow them to use shorter routes. So the main route of the Pony Express stretched from Sacramento, California to St. Joseph, Missouri. And with this new system, the founders of the Pony Express said that they could deliver letters over this span in a matter of 10 days, a period that many said was impossible. But with the idea concepted, the founders organized it in a matter of only two months. So they gathered 120 riders, 400 horses, several hundred personnel, and established 184 stations along this main route. And when things got started, the Pony Express proved wildly successful. It was faster and cheaper than the best competition. But like a good team, a coach can have a great system, can call great plays. But it doesn't matter if his players don't execute. So the Pony Express, great idea, great system. But it doesn't matter if their riders couldn't execute. Traveling 2,000 miles in 10 days meant exchanging multiple riders and ponies along the way. And most riders traveled an average of 75 miles a day. So you can imagine with that breakneck pace, these riders were uniquely tough characters. There's some great stories in folklore coming from the Pony Express riders, like Buffalo Bill, who's in fact my distant cousin. <laughs> it's true. Who supposedly traveled 322 miles in 21 hours on horseback. Then there is Pony Bob Haslam, who delivered Abraham Lincoln's inaugural speech after being shot in the jaw with an Indian arrow. Stories like these abound, and they are fascinating. What I find particularly fascinating, though, as others have pointed out, is the way the Pony Express recruited their riders with just brutal honesty. One of their recruitment advertisements read like this. Wanted, young, skinny, wiry fellows not over 18. Must be expert riders, willing to risk death daily, orphans preferred. <laughs> you know what's more stunning than this advertisement? Was that the Pony Express never had a shortage of applicants or riders. Their honesty wasn't enough to scare off young men. Last week, we talked about church membership, how it's a mutually recognized commitment between an individual and between a church, how it's the words giving explanation to what's happening in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, how it's the action of the church and an individual saying, I do to one another, making promises to each other. Now, we'll review more of what membership is, just in case you didn't hear, and you need that review. But we closed last week with how churches practice membership well. And one of those ways is being clear and honest for what they are calling members to, which really means is being clear and honest for what it means to actually be a Christian. And we follow the steps of our Lord in this. Read the Gospels and see how Jesus seems to get, try to get less and less people to follow him. It's like he's constantly saying, 
Are you sure you want to do this? I mean, are you really sure? He constantly ups the ante. He says, have you counted the cost? Have you taken up your cross? Have you denied yourself? Have you been willing to leave your family if necessary? Are you willing to lose your life? So forth. Are you really sure? Being honest and clear about what it means to follow him. And it's not that that cost saves us, but that is how radically faith in Christ reorients our life. Pastor Kevin DeYoung says that if churches hung out recruiting advertisements like the Pony Express did, they would read something like this. Many of them would read something like this. Wanted. Vaguely spiritual cultural Christians must attend church sporadically, give miserly, serve if you are into that sort of thing. We'll tailor our music and our preaching to fit your style. Ethical standards are minimal. Beliefs are negotiable. People like us preferred. Is that the church in the United States of America in 2018? Sadly, for many places, it is. Now, this isn't to say we're getting it right, they're getting it wrong. Nananaboo-boo. <laughs> but it is to say that Jesus intends his church to be something more than that. So church discipline and membership stem from the belief that Christ has ransomed us, not just from the punishment for our sin, but also from the power of it. That because of him, we live lives that are distinct from the world. Church membership and discipline stem from the concern that we want to see people so transformed by Christ that they live holy lives. That when that question comes up, are you sure you want to follow are you sure about this? That they say with the resounding, yes. In light of our cultural context, and even the context of American Christianity, something like church discipline is surprising. It's even perhaps offensive. I would argue that real love is often the same way. It's the main point I submit to you this morning. That the love you need from God and the church may not be the love you want from God and the church. Church discipline is painful, but it aims at love, obedience, restoration, and glorifying Christ. So like last week, we want to explain the purpose and importance of a biblical practice, church discipline. But to know the, the purpose and importance of church discipline, we have to know what church discipline is. And to know what it is, we must go to God's word. And we must consider how it fits with what the Bible says about other things we've been studying, like a local church, like ordinances, like membership. Now, we can know the what and the why of church discipline. But if we don't know the how, it's just going to remain an idea in our heads. So in our time together this morning, we can't exhaust every possible thing about church discipline. But we want to give a good general overview and touch on all of these things. And just as a side note, these, these sermons in the recent weeks have had more informational content. But friends, know that I am striving not to make them dry lectures. I'm, I really have that prayer. And just because there is more informational content does not mean it has to be devoid of reverence. So, with that said, what is church discipline? Well, we, again, we could take a tour of the Bible. And we open our time of worship together with God's call to his covenant people, Israel, to be holy. He says in Leviticus 11, you shall be holy. Why? Because I am holy. 
We can say a lot about what it means to be holy. But basically, it means to be separated from sin, separated from rebellion against God, separated from what is against Him. To be holy is to be separated from sin and devoted to God and His glory. That is what it means to be holy. And God wants holiness for a group of people, for his people. So to answer that question, what is church discipline? We can go all the way back to the Old Testament and see the way God ordered his covenant community to keep themselves holy. How does God tell Israel to preserve their holiness? to preserve their separation from sin and their devotion to him. Well, positively, he says, continue to worship me and worship me alone. I alone am God. Negatively, he tells them to get rid of anything that compromises their holiness, that would lead them away from him. So we could take a tour of the book of Deuteronomy and see all the ways God preserves holiness in his people by commanding them to get rid of those who lead them away from holiness. See this first in Deuteronomy chapter 13. If you're using one of these red pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 157. Now look, used to looking at a Bible? Well, I opened right to it, Providence. Um, if you're not used to looking at a Bible, the books are on the top corners, and the chapters are the first numbers, the numbers in big bold print, the verse numbers are the ones in superscripts, uh, the little numbers after the chapter numbers. So we're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5. And here we find instructions about a prophet who attempts to lead people away from God. It says, But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. That's shocking. Purge the evil from your midst. This prophet is attempting to lead people away from God. So we ask, what? Is God afraid of competition? No. Read this verse closely. Read the context of it. You see how offensive this particular sin is when you realize who God actually is and what God has actually done for his people. Friends, that's why sin is so serious. Sin is serious because of who we sin against. That is the eternal creator. There is none like him, none, who is alone self-sufficient, who is alone holy, and who is good in all his ways. That is why sin is so serious. So we see that same command, attempting to preserve the holiness of his people. Purge the evil from your midst. See that in chapter 17, verse 7, with idolatry. See it in chapter 19, with murderers and those who committed perjury. See it in chapter 21, those who break the fifth commandment. Utterly rebellious children. That's shocking. You don't see details of this, but it's serious enough that their own parents can bring legitimate charges against them. Preserving holiness. Purge the evil from among you. Chapter 22, we see it with adultery. Chapter 24, we see it with kidnapping. It's by sinning in all these ways, individuals threatened the safety and the purity and the holiness of the collective group. And in all these, just to make clear, we find due process. It has to be a certain number of witnesses. The witnesses staked their lives on telling the truth. And we find the penalty of these sins lining up with the wages of all sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It served to warn people, to protect the community, to preserve their holiness. So fundamental to understanding church discipline 
is understanding that God is holy and he wants his people to be like him, to be holy. Does God change? You turn to Matthew 18, page 823. And Jesus has this same concern for his covenant community, the church, that they would be holy. God has not changed. You can begin reading in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You notice a few things about Matthew 18, about what Jesus says here. It'll be clearer as we go along. But for now, see that Jesus is concerned with a couple of things. Jesus is concerned that the sinner in question repents. That the sinner in question repents. You notice the goal. The goal is to win your brother. Jesus is also concerned. We see this from the process he prescribes. That as few as, as people possible are involved in the process. He wants to keep the number small. So underlining these concerns, underneath both of these is the same assumption and the same command that was back in Deuteronomy. That God's people are to live differently than the world. That they are to be holy, separated from sin, devoted to God. Their lives should show this indicates this way. If it doesn't show this, Jesus says they're just like the world. They are pagans and tax collectors. So the point is, church members, Christians, should live differently from the world. One author writes, and if, as we see here, after a series of gracious warnings, they don't do that, a church That's who's to make the final decision. You notice here, that's the final step of the process. The church, if they don't do that, should exclude them from their fellowship. Preserving holiness. Last stop of the tour, 1 Corinthians 5. We read it earlier. You can find it in your bulletin or on page 954 of your Bible. We see some similarities, but also some differences between 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18. Like Jesus, Paul charges the church to a judicial task. He says, when they are assembled, they are to remove this man from fellowship, this man who slept with his stepmother, and everyone knew about it. We don't see the same process Jesus prescribes. Paul just tells the church to remove him. We'll see more on this later. So the final step of removal, what does that mean? Well, if the church is an outpost of the kingdom of God, then everyone who does not belong to the kingdom of God belongs to the realm of the world. And the Bible calls that the kingdom of Satan. The Bible says that he is the prince of this world. And that is what Jesus and Paul says it means to be no longer a part of the covenant community. And Paul closes 1 Corinthians 5 by quoting Deuteronomy. He says, purge the evil from among you. He comes at the end of an extended warning that not removing this man puts the whole church at risk. 
So here we are. Biblical basis. Church discipline. Displaying God's concern to keep his covenant community holy. Does this jive with the gospel? Think about this. I thought God forgives sin in Christ. And we sang it earlier. Our sin, not in part, the whole, is nailed to the cross. We bear it no more. Why then should we have to worry about correcting sin? Well, behind all these passages on church discipline is the Bible's presentation of what the gospel is, of what a Christian is, what a local church is, what church membership is. You've got to understand all these things for, the, for this to make sense. Remember that the gospel is that God's son became man and did what we didn't and couldn't do. Live completely holy without any sin. But he died the death we deserve for our sin. It was put on his shoulders. And he rose from the dead, defeating both sin and death. And now he offers salvation from God's righteous judgment for our sin, which only comes when we are united to him. Friends, how are we united to him? Jesus says to repent and believe, to turn from your sin, turn from the way you are living for yourself and trust only in him. The gospel includes the response of repentance. It includes the response of an expected change. Jesus himself said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So then a Christian is one who has faith in the gospel of Christ. And now 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, all things have become new for a Christian. All things. A new status with God, forgiven, reconciled because of what Christ has done. A new nature wrought by the Spirit, new desires in our hearts. A new family adopted into God's family with New brothers and sisters that's displayed in a local church in a new job description. So that a Christian is a Jesus representative. A Christian bears the name of Christ. That's what baptism and the Lord's Supper are saying in part. They are saying, here are Jesus representatives. Here are those who identify with Christ's death and resurrection and membership in his body. So if we represent Christ, if that is what a Christian is, and if the gospel saved us from the power of sin, and if we are expected to repent from our old way of living, our lives should look like Christ. They should look like holiness. And the case stacks up even more. You know what a local church has been authorized to do? Even here. They have been authorized to to determine if we are actually following Jesus. If we are actually Jesus' representatives. That's what this passage is talking about. And this affirmation is done through the ordinances. And it's made explicit in church membership. So it's the words, church membership, that explain and make explicit that both sides are committing to each other, that this person is a Jesus representative, and that this church will provide oversight and will help this person, and that individual will follow Jesus among those people, saying that he or she needs help. So friends, we looked at the biblical data, okay? But look behind it. And built into the gospel, built into what a Christian is, built into what a local church has been authorized to do, is the expectation that Christians can be recognized by their holy lives. So this relates to everything we've discussed so far in this series. And if church membership 
is a church recognizing, affirming that someone is a Jesus representative. And church discipline means that they are removing that affirmation. Church discipline, if you want a definition, here it is, is the act of removing an individual from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's table. Because the Lord's table is for Christians. And they, we affirm that these are Christians who are partaking. That's why this is referred to as excommunication, excommunioning. In church discipline, a church is saying, we can no longer publicly affirm that this person is a Christian. That's, that's a big thing to say, which you would see why we need to be careful in this. But at times, this is necessary. And notice, that doesn't mean that a person is not a Christian. It's not what it means. It means that right now, a church can't tell. They can't affirm this. Church discipline is not assigning someone to hell. It is not doing that. Neither is church discipline banning someone from attending church. Rather, church discipline is a church saying we can no longer affirm this individual's profession of faith in Christ. It's a serious task. This is a weighty task. I see it's important soon. But at where we are right now, kind of outside of the pool. Right? You may be a little kid, first time you go swimming, still outside of the pool. Your dad takes you aside and he explains, he tells you how to swim. You got to kick your feet, got to move your arms. You know the idea of swimming. At some point, you got to jump in the pool. So this leads to our next set of questions. If we know what church discipline is, when is it necessary? And how are we to do it when it is necessary? When should we go forward in this? In light of the backdrop we've discussed and the definition we came to, churches go forward with church discipline when they can no longer publicly and confidently affirm a person's profession of faith in Christ. They can no longer do that when a person is characteristically unrepentant characteristically unrepentant. Notice, not temporarily unrepentant, characteristically. This is a part of what the person is. So what kinds of sin would undermine our confidence in affirming someone as a Christian? Well, a list of sins here would be inappropriate. We need to talk about, instead, categories of it. Think three, three categories. Sins that undermine a church's confidence must be outward, serious, and unrepented of. Outward, serious, and unrepented of. They must be outward because maybe you have them and I don't, but God hasn't given us x-ray vision goggles. We can't see into people's hearts. So remember that this is a public affirmation and it's based on a public or outward fruit of what we can see and hear. So this means we don't throw the flag every time we suspect pride or greed in someone. The sin must be outward. The sin must also be serious. Thankfully, God does not discipline us to the utmost every time we sin. And we can't do the same thing either. Finally, the sin must be unrepented of. That means a person has been confronted about it and they refuse to let it go. They refuse to take a stance against it. Just as a side note on this point, serious, or outward serious, unrepented of. I wonder if you can see how non-attendance fits into this. I want to be very, very, very gentle here. But this is, a, this is a serious matter. By refusing, by refusing to attend church for a long period of time, I'm not going to define how long that period is, but the point is you characteristically refuse to attend church. And you are, you are a member of that church. You are disobeying the command of Hebrews 10.25. Saying not neglecting 
assembling with other Christians. Just consider what church discipline is. Consider what church membership is, what a local church has been authorized to do. When you refuse to show up to church, how can a church affirm your profession of faith in Christ if they never see you? It's not saying that you won't go through seasons. Absolutely. No. It's not saying that sickness or vacations don't happen. Friends, if you've committed to be a member of a church, the most basic thing you've promised your fellow members, your fellow brothers and sisters, the most basic thing is that you will be here. I want to be gentle on that. So if you, if you move, decide to go to another church, transfer your membership. Side note. Sometimes it will take a long time to figure out if a person is characteristically unrepentant. Other times there are certain sins that will show us immediately that it prevents a church from being able to affirm that this person is a Christian. Either way, the final removal from membership is saying that you no longer publicly and confidently affirm that an individual is a Christian. And you could see why then a church should take this carefully and seriously. So how do we determine if a person is characteristically unrepentant? We don't have those x-ray vision goggles. This is tough, but we're authorized to do this, and we're even commanded to do this. So what are the steps that we take? Well, thankfully, the Bible isn't silent on this matter. So when we decide that it's necessary to go forward, when we want to determine if a person is characteristically unrepentant, this is how we should do it. We should strive to involve the least number of people as possible. That's the process, that's the principle that Jesus advocates for in Matthew 18. This protects the individual from undue embarrassment and scrutiny, keeps the church from knowing every single one of the struggles of every single person. We can nuance this a little bit. The sins are, that are more public in nature, sins that everyone knows about, might need to be addressed in some way by the church leaders so that they can teach positively on this, so that they can show God's grace in bringing these people to repentance. So involve as least number of people as possible. How can a church determine characteristic unrepentance? Well, if that initial one-on-one -on -one encounter goes nowhere. You involve more people when necessary. And those people should probably be mature members, most likely elders. So Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul here calls on the spiritual. So if the initial one-on-one -on -one counter goes nowhere, and often that's not the case. More people should get involved. And we can stay in this stage for a while. Remember, what we're trying to determine is weighty. It's tough to tell if a person is characteristically unrepentant. We want to make sure of this. And sometimes this means moving slowly. Other times, it means moving more quickly. Some sins more quickly undermine a profession of faith than others. But as the process continues and more and more people get involved, the question that continues to confront the person in question is, are you sure you want to hold on to this sin? Typically, repenting people are zealous to get rid of their sin. They will go to any lengths to do so. They will continue to ask for help. They will continue to confess it. Read the first part of Matthew 18. Sometimes, though, words promising repentance aren't enough, and we need to act more quickly. All sin's wrong. All sin misrepresents Christ. But there are some sins so deliberate, God forbid, pattern of abuse or murder. Some sins so shocking, God forbid, rape that any quick words of apology 
just would be unbelievable. They couldn't be credible. Again, one author is helpful here. It's not the case that these sins cannot be forgiven or that a person might not immediately be repentant. But sometimes time needs to pass and the fruit of repentance displayed before a church can do what it's been called to do. And that is affirmed that someone is a Christian. So for the sake of protecting from scandal or division or even false teaching, we should act swiftly sometimes. So where are we? Shall we move forward in discipline when we determine a person's characteristically unrepentant? And how do we determine that? How do we call a person back? Most often, we do so individually and privately. But if that doesn't work, we involve more people until we are convinced that a person is characteristically unrepentant. Sometimes that'll take longer than others. But once convinced, the congregation as a whole is the one who does the removal. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 18. The last step is the church. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, when they are assembled. So involving the whole church in this gives opportunity to pursue this person even more. There's time between telling them and actually removing them. Time to say, pleading with them to come back to Christ. It lets people know what's going on. And a brief side note, a person in question can't resign their membership in the middle of this process. It does not work like that. It'd be like a, a, if a U.S. citizen was under trial, in the middle of the trial said, I renounce my citizenship, and they got out of the trial. It just doesn't work. Once a church moves to remove a person from membership, Jesus says, Paul says, that the relationship that the church has with that person should change. It's no longer casual. It should be deliberate conversations about repentance. But when this process works, when this process works, works is when restoration happens is when the brother or the sister comes back and that is beautiful it's when a sinner repents and the church is convinced that that repentance is real friends we don't want to do this we don't want to do church discipline that's why we have to be careful to do things that would prevent us from doing this, that, that would keep us from doing this. That's why we must be clear on the gospel. It's why we must be clear on what a Christian is, on what a church is, on what church membership is. That's why we need to be responsible in adding members well so that we don't falsely affirm a profession of faith on the front end. This is why we need to be open with one another in the here and now, so that we are able to receive gentle and honest reproof. We need each other's help, and that means accountability. This doesn't mean you have to be an open book about everything to every single person here, but it does mean inviting a couple of people in to your struggles, giving them permission to say, hard things to you. That's loving. That's for our good. So friends, as much as we don't want to do this, and as many things that can prevent us from doing this, sometimes we have to do this. Will churches be perfect? No. But when we see that we have to do this, we have to proceed in a certain way. Our posture matters in this. We have to maintain humility, faith, and love. We don't do this with a self-righteous attitude and a holier-than-thou attitude. We do it as those who are indebted to God's grace, knowing full well we are just as vulnerable to sin. 
We don't do this relying on our own wisdom. We rely instead on God's wisdom and have faith that his ways are higher than our ways. We don't do this vindictively. We do this lovingly with the goal of restoring the person. So friends, this is tough. Which is why many churches don't do this. It's for the same reasons that parents don't discipline their kids. It's not easy to do. Some churches would quote Matthew 7.1. Judge not, lest you be judged. They forget to read the rest of Matthew. Jesus says we are to call out others for their sin, even publicly if necessary. If they are proclaiming to be a Christian. So whatever Jesus means in Matthew 7, he does not mean to rule out the kind of judging he commands us to do in Matthew 18. What he prohibits instead in Matthew 7 is personal revenge and self-righteousness, a holier-than-thou attitude. The point is, if your fellow Christians, if your church, fellow church members are not concerned if they see an open pattern of sin in your life, if they are not concerned with that, then they are not loving you in the way that Jesus intends for them to love you. Other churches would avoid discipline not because they disagree with it, but because they're simply distracted with other things. It's kind of like me and flossing. I don't disagree that the concept of flossing will help keep my teeth clean. I understand that it will help, that it does good things. I'm not going to floss. Maybe I will. I don't know. (laughs) Every time I go to the dentist, I know what he's going to say. You should floss. Thank you. (laughs) This isn't unlike churches. Just have different priorities. Distracted. And it's not a new problem. Historian Greg Wills looks at churches at the turn of the 20th century. And many of these churches disciplined 2% of their membership every year. And they grew. But as they grew, they became distracted with other things. Namely, reforming society at large. As they grew, they became more concerned with the purity of the community around them than their own community. As these churches grew, there were too many people to keep up with. Discipline became inconvenient and inefficient. They had new buildings and budgets to maintain. Couldn't rock the boat in the meantime. So it's not that anyone advocated that church discipline go away. Other priorities became more important, and it just faded. So why is church discipline important? It's tough, especially in our context, especially in the context of churches in America that present Christianized versions of the world. Oh yes, there is a way to abuse church discipline. Yes, there is a way to do it wrong. But we must not abandon it. So hopefully we've seen throughout our time together why this is important clarify briefly, I promise, with four reasons. Church discipline is important for the sake of the individual, for the sake of the individual. You remember that man from 1 Corinthians 5? You know, the one who who slept with his stepmother? Verse 11 says that he bore the name of brother. It means he identified as a Christian. That means Paul had to tell them to remove him from their fellowship That means this man was regularly among them. This man went to church all the time. This man thought he was a Christian and did all the things that Christians supposedly do. Yet everybody knew about this sin. Could you imagine if the Corinthians did nothing about this? What would they effectively been saying to this man? You can represent Jesus and you can live however you want. That's what they're saying. That's what they would have said. Sin in our lives 
can be like carbon monoxide. Sometimes we can't see it, can't sense it. And if we don't have an outside warning system in place, that sin will lull us and that sin will destroy us. So church discipline is meant to be that kind of warning system. To warn about what sin really is, that it's dangerous if you leave it unchecked. So you see this in Hebrews chapter 12. You turn there, page 1009. And here we find that, yes, discipline is painful, but it's meant to pay off. It's meant for our good. The author's comparing a parent's discipline to God's. Beginning in verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his, what? His holiness. Back again to that theme. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The goal of discipline, friends, is our good. Number two, church discipline is important for the sake of the church's health and obedience. What keeps our bodies healthy? Don't answer kale. I'm not going to do that either. Our immune systems. Our immune systems. Not practicing biblical, loving church discipline is like removing a church's immune system. It takes away a church's ability to check and guard against wrong teaching that would lead people away to Christ. It takes away a church's ability to guard against wrong living that misrepresents Christ. Not practicing biblical, loving church discipline ignores signs of sickness, which allows sickness to spread and shows that something essential to the body is missing. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 5. One of the reasons that Paul tells the Corinthians to remove this man from membership is because he knows that sin can spread quickly among people and it can affect the rest of the body. So that's why when discipline, practiced rightly, teaches the entire congregation of the seriousness and danger of sin, it protects a church's health and holiness. So what does this mean? Does this mean we... Go around, call, call out each other every time we see sin. We've misunderstood it if that's what we do. Discipline is not the focal point of who we are. No. It allows us to get on with the main thing of who we are. Pastor Mark Dever says this, Discipline is no more the focal point of the church than medicine is the focal point of life. Friends, sometimes we need medicine. Sometimes we need a lot of it. But it's meant to get us back to the main thing. It's meant to restore our health. Number three, church discipline is important for the sake of the church's witness. For the sake of the church's witness. Friends, why should the world be curious about Christianity? if Christians live lives that are no different from them? Why should they be curious? Why should they be compelled? That's a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. That our different and distinct lives are supposed to be compelling to the world. Consider 1 Peter 2.12. It says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Consider what we read in Matthew 5. That Jesus' followers are supposed to be salt and light in the world. Something that's distinct. Something that's not in the dark. So what the world needs now is not something similar to itself. Something different from itself. The world needs salt and light. And as Christians, we don't hold ourselves up to be better than the world. We say we are sinners, saved and transformed, not by our own work, but by God's grace. But church discipline 
and meaningful membership is loving to the outside world because it shows them it actually means something to be a Christian. And if we don't practice biblical loving church discipline, then we can't say what a Christian isn't. And if we can't say what a Christian isn't, how can we say what a Christian is? To the outside world, church discipline shows, oh, Christians don't live in unrepentant sin. I'm living in unrepentant sin. Maybe I am not a Christian. Number four, last thing. Church discipline is important for the sake of the reputation and glory of Christ. For the sake of the reputation and glory of Christ. Remember you said our new job description. Jesus representative, ambassador. That makes a church a group of Jesus representatives. That means Jesus has attached his name to us. That means in large part, he has staked his reputation on Christians, on local churches. Boy, that's a high responsibility. If we don't practice biblical loving church discipline, what are we saying about the one we supposedly represent? We're saying, oh, we see this command, but I think we've advanced a little bit beyond that. Oh, we see how you love, but I, we think we can love a little bit better. If we don't do this, what, what are we saying about the one we are supposed to represent? We are saying that we're fine with representing him by sinning and not willing to turn from it. Is that the reputation we want to establish for the one who's supposed to be our Lord and Savior? Friends, in closing, we remember the power of the gospel and what God has saved us to. The power is the forgiveness of sin and the freedom from the bondage of sin. God has saved us to a new nature, a new family, and a new identity. And our new identity means that we now bear Christ's name. You know what Christian means, literally? Little Christ. Though we are not yet perfect, our lives are meant now to bring Christ glory, not shame. So church discipline says, we need help. We need help to do this well. We need help to seek Christ in holiness, not for the sake of our name, but for the sake of his. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, again, with such a word that is difficult to our natural ears, we need your help to receive it. For God, we often think we need the love that we don't actually need. We need love at times that we don't want. But God, it is for our good. So Lord, help us to trust your ways. Help us to seek holiness. And God, above all else, we need your help and your grace to represent the name of Jesus well. Honestly, to turn from our sin when we see it, and to help others. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.